0: Well, we are in a study in the book of Joel this summer, and uh, we're actually going to conclude the study next week. But today I would encourage you to turn in your Bibles with me to the little Old Testament book of Joel. And this morning we are in chapter 3, and we will look at verses 9 down through verse 16 of Joel 3. If you remember with me through our study in this Old Testament book of Joel, we've seen that from chapter 1, verse 1, through chapter 2, verse 27, that God has been working with his people Israel, bringing discipline upon them. He's disciplined them because they've grown cold in their hearts to the Lord. They haven't been walking in obedience before him. And Joel told them that in the near term, a day of the Lord was imminent, a time when God was going to break through into their lives and bring even greater discipline upon them. And that they needed to repent. They needed to change the course of their lives from walking away from the Lord and turn around and start walking toward him again, starting to obey him and yield to his leadership in their lives. And that's what Israel did. And the Lord said, I will bring restoration to you. As we came to the middle of the book, chapter 2, verse 28 and following, the prophets started transitioning to a future day of the Lord a time that was maybe foreshadowed in the near portion from chapter 1, verse 1 through 2, verse 27. But this future day of the Lord will be even greater magnitude. And in this future day of the Lord, this period of time where God will break through history and actually bring His plan on earth here to its culmination, we will see ultimately God delivering his people Israel, we see him initiating his kingdom on earth that begins with a thousand-year reign and then ushers in to the kingdom on earth forever and ever as we will ever be with the Lord. But with this coming, this this future day of the Lord, well, God will break through, and deliver his people, and initiate his kingdom, there will also be judgment. Judgment of those who, in a sense, lift their hands before the Lord, their fists before the Lord, and say, I am going to do what I want to do. I am not going to yield my life to you. And at times... When we live our everyday lives, we, we start to feel like people can just stand in defiance against the Lord and nothing seems to happen. There, there doesn't seem to be any negative ramification to that. And yet, we see here in Joel and other prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Zechariah that all look forward to this day, when one day God will punish those who stand in rejection against Him. Last week, in chapter three, verses one through eight, Joel introduced this ultimate future coming in judgment, and today, in chapter three, verses nine through sixteen, Joel is going to talk about a a battle. That all the nations of the earth who stand in rejection of God are going to join together and in an ultimate battle will all focus in on the holy city of Jerusalem. And in attacking God's people, they are attacking Him. And yet, we are going to see as we look through these verses that As the nations one day will gather against God and his people, they have lost the battle before it ever begins. Because they will be battling the Lord himself. And in this description of this mammoth worldwide battle where the nations of the earth all gather together against God and his people, Right at the end of Joel's description of it, he's going to remind us that the Lord is our refuge. I'm going to read the verses, and as you follow along and and look at Joel's description of this battle, look also for how Joel brings this section to a conclusion by reminding us that God is our refuge. Starting to read in chapter 3, verse 9. Proclaim this among the nations. Prepare a war. Rouse the mighty men. Let all the soldiers draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a mighty man. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down, O Lord, your mighty ones. Let the nations be aroused, and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their wickedness is great." multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon grow dark and the stars lose their brightness. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The heavens and the earth tremble. But the Lord is a refuge for his people and a stronghold to the sons of Israel. So in this scary description of the direction of where world history is headed, this day when all the nations of the earth are going to gather in defiance against God and in defiance against God's people, Joel chooses in that description to say the Lord is our refuge. Why does Joel do that? Why do you think in this description of God's judgment, Joel says, Just remember, the Lord's our refuge. He's our stronghold. Well, I think it's because just as the people who originally received this writing from Joel needed to be reminded that God is our refuge... And remember, they are going through some difficult days at the time of the writing of this book. Just because they needed to be reminded, so also do we need to be reminded that God is our refuge. Because we too live in scary days. We live in days where more and more we are seeing people. Maybe not in these exact words, but in their attitudes and their actions, saying, I hate God. I'm going to do what I want to do. And we look at the course, the trajectory, even of what our nation is on, and we look at surrounding nations and we say, where will it stop? And yet, just as Joel tells the people of Israel, we can be reminded that just as God was a refuge and a stronghold in Israel's day, clear back here in the book of Joel, so also he is a stronghold, a refuge for us. I was reading recently about Cochise. Most of what I have known about Cochise came from John Wayne movies when the Apache chief Cochise would go on the renegade. But I've read a little bit more about Cochise and found out that chief Cochise, pretty remarkable person, he basically led a revolt against the U.S. for over 15 years. And Cochise had a hideout, a stronghold, That you can go to today, it's south of Tucson, Arizona, and it is in the Coronado National Forest. And you can go to this stronghold at about 5,000 feet of elevation and walk in and see this refuge that Chief Cochise used to stay out of harm's way. evidently he died on a reservation in 1874 and folks from the apache nation took his body back to the stronghold and secretly buried it there you know it's amazing that that stronghold that cochise used in 18 and the 50s the 60s early 70s, uh we can still go and walk around there today. Why? Because it's a, it's a fortress. It's a natural fortress in the mountains. It's rock. It was there hundreds of years ago. It's there today. It's still going to be there. And what Joel is saying here, in fact, one of the words he uses is stronghold, and sometimes that Hebrew word can actually uh, connote a, a natural stronghold, like in a mountain. What Joel is saying is, we too have a stronghold. A safe place. And it's not going away. It's always been there. It's there today. And as we think and look and watch how history is, unfold- is unfolding, and it's unfolding rapidly, we too have a stronghold. And it's in the person of our Lord. Cochise's stronghold was made out of rock. Our stronghold is the rock. And so Joel here is going to describe future events that are also described by the other prophets. And this morning we're going to see that they're even described in the book of Revelation. Demonstrating just the unity of Scripture that... As humans wrote down Scripture, they didn't do it of their own will and their own intellect and their own devices. But the Spirit of God, as Peter says, bore them along. So what they wrote was the were the actual words of God. And we see this unity of Scripture all pointing to this day. In the future, when the Lord's going to break through history, deliver His people, initiate His kingdom, but in the process is going to judge those who stand in rebellion against him. As this section opens in verses 9 through 15, we're going to see that there's going to be a battle, that the Lord will do battle with the nations, defeating them as judge. And in verse 9, Joel calls out to a messenger an unknown messenger, and says, announce this. Proclaim this among the nations. Prepare a war. And so we find a call to war to the nations who stand in rebellion against God. And it's a call to all people. He says, call up the mighty men, those, those valiant warriors, those military men. But then if you look, Down in verse 10, it says, Let the weak say, I am a mighty man. So it's the nations as a whole gathering before the Lord, thinking that they are going to do battle. Probably in their minds, they're going to wipe out God's people Israel. What they don't understand is that God dwells in Israel's midst and will... Demonstrate that he is Israel's God. And will appear as the judge. They think they're gathered for war. The Lord thinks they're gathered for judgment. This messenger is to tell these many in this agricultural setting, you better transform your farm implements into military weapons. So he talks about in verse 10, plowshares and pruning hooks. When I was in high school here, growing up here in Iowa, I used to walk beans. That When you walk beans, it means you go through the beans and you remove the weeds, like buttonweed and thistle and whatever's in that field. And we used to use a bean hook. It's actually a little knife that has a hooked end on it. And when I read about pruning hooks here, it's that principle, but it's used in a vineyard. It's a special knife used to prune the grapevines. And here we find Joel telling this messenger, you better tell them to make implements for war. Take your pruning hooks and form them into a spear. Nations prepare. And we see this as a message to the nations, because if you look at verse 9, it says, Proclaim this among the nations. Verse 11, hasten and come, all you surrounding nations. Verse 12, let the nations be aroused and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And we saw that last week in verse 2, that some believe that Jehoshaphat is a valley that will be formed that we read about in Zechariah chapter 14, when the Lord Jesus Christ comes back to earth, his feet will touch the town of Mount of Olives. And in Zechariah 14, it tells us the Mount actually splits in half and a valley is formed. And some believe that that valley will be the Valley of Jehoshaphat. Others believe that what's being referred to here, since the name Jehoshaphat means the Lord judges, it's just saying, get ready for the Lord's judgment, assemble for judgment. Judgment. And here we find the nations are called to gather together. They think for battle. But what's interesting is once you get through verse 11, all the battle terms seem to go away, and all of a sudden we see the Lord as judge. You see, they've lost before they even begin. In fact, it tells us in verse... Let's see here if I can find it. Verse 11. As they gather, verse 11 also calls to the Lord's armies. Bring down, O Lord, your mighty ones. And the other prophets talk about this coming of the Lord and his forces as well. For example, in Zechariah 14, verse 5, it says, Then the Lord my God will come, and all the holy ones with him. And so, the picture is set. The nations believe that they are gathering against the Lord, against his people. And yet, the battle's over before it even starts. Because what they don't realize is that where they are actually gathering is before the Lord God as judge. The battle is done before it begins. You see, just as is true in this day of Joel, we see today that people choose to reject God. And we're living in a day where people want to define who God is. If they think there is a God, I will define who God is in my image. Well, God is this. God is that. I, You even hear people verbalizing their view of God. It's as if they take out uh, some Plato, and they image their God after what they think God should be. Barbara and I were in the car recently talking about uh, actors in Hollywood, and it baffles me why America cares what actors think. Why do Americans care at all what some actor thinks about social issues? They're a person who's overpaid, who their lives are totally messed up. Their, their lives are marked by brokenness. There's very few of them that, that have any semblance of, of, of um, family unity. They are continually thinking that they can form themselves according to what they believe they should look like. And it's just, I think, grotesque how some of them try to make themselves look physically as they, as they, as they grow in maturity. And yet, they prance out and they kind of say what they think and America just claps. Oh, this person's famous. I'll listen to what they say about social issues. And they don't even have the ability to find any way of of uh, holding their own personal lives together. You see, in the eyes of people today, who God is is subject to our design. I can make myself look the way I want, and I can make God look the way I want him to look. But one day, people over the entire earth will see that, huh, God's not subject to what I think he should be. I'm subject to him. And that's going to come out very clear when all of the nations think that they are in control and they gather against God and yet God is going to exercise judgment against them. Now there's a little phrase I want us to see here that reminds us that God is totally right. He's just in exercising judgment against people. And if you look at verse 13, right at the end, or the whole verse, God is speaking, and he says, Prepare, because the harvest of judgment is ready. Put the sickle in, for the harvest is ripe. Come, tread, for the wine press is full. The vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. You see, people choose to reject God. And we see it in the Old Testament and we see it in the New Testament. I'm going to turn to Romans chapter 1 and remind us what the New Testament tells us about people choosing to reject God. In verse 18 it says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for the image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four footed animals and crawling creatures. Paul talks about it in Second Thessalonians chapter one. People choose to reject God. Second Thessalonians chapter one, and we will start I will start reading in verse six of Second Thessalonians chapter one. For after all, it's only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to give relief to you who are afflicted, and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God, And to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. And Paul there looks at those people who may be in the remotest part of Irian And according to Romans 1, they should be able to look at creation. And say, there's a God I will seek after him. But even with that testimony of God, they push it away. And then Paul here in 2 Thessalonians 1 talks about the fact, then there's others who have clearly heard the good news. That Jesus is God, that he died for us and rose again. And when we put our trust in him, his payment for sin is credited to our lives and our sin is forgiven and we can be right with him. And they push it away. You see, God is totally right and just in bringing judgment. Now this battle that we see described here in Joel 3 is also described for us in the New Testament, in the book of Revelation. And just to be reminded of the unity of Scripture and the fact that the Spirit of God is the one who wrote this book, this is the only book that God has ever written, I want to remind us, About this description of the battle that Joel talks about in the New Testament in the book of Revelation. And look for some of the same imagery. The vat, the wine press being ready, the sickle in these descriptions of what we know as Armageddon in the book of Revelation. I'm going to start reading in Revelation chapter 14. Listen to this future judgment that's coming. It's the same judgment that Joel's talking about here. In Joel 3, first of all, Revelation chapter 14, starting the read in verse 14. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and sitting on the cloud was one like a son of man, having a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, because the harvest of earth is ripe. Then he who sat on the clouds swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was reaped. And another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, and he also had a sharp sickle. Then another angel, the one who has power over fire, came out from the altar, and he called with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Put in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, because her grapes are ripe so the angel swung his sickle to the earth and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth and threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of god and the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood came out from the winepress up to the horses' bridles for a distance of 200 miles then we just go over to chapter 16 and verse 16 i'll pick it up in verse I'll pick it up in verse uh, 14. For they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the whole earth of the whole world, to gather them together for the war of the great day of God, the Almighty. Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes so that he will not walk about naked and men will not see his shame. And they gather them together to the place, which in Hebrew is called Armageddon. And then finally in chapter 19, starting to read... In verse 11, I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and he who sat on it is called faithful and true. In righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire. His head are many diadems. He's made, he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He's clothed with a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the word of God. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun. He cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in the mid in the midheaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of the kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves and small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was seized and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. Those two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. The Lord is going to, in a day ahead, a period of time ahead, break through history. And he's coming to rescue his people, Israel, to usher in to initiate his kingdom rule on earth, but he's also coming as judge. And Joel here in Joel 3 is talking about the same event that John talks about in the book of Revelation that John refers to as Armageddon. And here, Joel describes the the horror of what's going to happen. And in the midst of all of that, right at the end of his description, he says in verse 16, The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth tremble. But the Lord is a refuge for his people and a stronghold to the sons of Israel. That's a message we all need. That's a message that each and every one of us need today. Because the Lord as our stronghold is the same Lord that was Israel's stronghold when Joel Pen these words. He's our stronghold today. And he will be our stronghold as we go forward, as we continue to see history unfold. The Lord is the refuge of his people. And we see here in verse 16, as the nations are gathered all against Jerusalem, it tells us, The Lord will leave his dwelling place. And remember for Israel, as the tabernacle and later the temple, they viewed the Lord as actually dwelling in their midst. It says that the Lord will leave his dwelling place and instead of entering into a battle with these guys, he comes as judge. It says he roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem and the heavens and the earth tremble. A couple of weeks ago, Barbara and I went to the Abraham Lincoln Museum in Springfield, Illinois. And in the museum, in one of the theaters, they have a movie about Lincoln, and they give everyone a warning that if you have young children, this may scare them, because in some of the battle scenes, smoke starts filling the room, and your chairs, as the cannons and things go off, your chairs actually shake in the room, it's a little freaky. And there were some kids that got a little bit nervous when the smoke started filling the room and the, and the, in the, the, and the floor and the seats are shaking. And here, I can just picture the Lord emerging. The nations think they're in control and all of a sudden it's the Lord Jesus Christ before them. And it says the entire earth shakes. Pretty scary. And then, in the midst of that backdrop, Joel says, the Lord's a refuge for his people and a stronghold to the sons of Israel. And he takes... Two synonyms, the uh, words that mean almost the identical same thing, a refuge and a stronghold. Sometimes stronghold is, is used in Hebrew to actually picture kind of like Cochisa's hangout. It's, it's, it's a, it's a natural stronghold up in the mountain. It's a place of safety. It's a place of refuge. It's a, it's a place that will always be there. And here, Joel says God is the refuge of his people. He's always our stronghold. We can always run to Him. We can always come to Him. Even when the earth shakes. This fall I was coming back from doing a funeral for a good friend of mine and I was on Highway 18 up near Mason City, Iowa about 8.30 in the evening and I'm just driving along listening to my tunes. And all of a sudden, without any warning, I have airbag in my face. And I didn't even see it, but I hit a deer. It just, the grass was tall, and I'm just going along, and I just, it's immediate airbag. And I thought the whole inside of the car was filled with smoke. It wasn't smoke, it's some kind of powder that's inside of that airbag. But I have to say, I was shook up. I, I, my leg was. I, I think I had kind of a pulsating leg for a little while, because it was just like it's quite a shock and it was painful. I, my hands from the steering wheel hurt for weeks as that thing hit me, and even after that, I didn't really feel like driving at eight thirty out in the country. I was, I was very much paranoid of deer, and. Uh, just that, that that sounds and the smoke that I thought was smoke and the, the pound and the, wow. And that's nothing compared to what it will be like for people to face the judgment of God. I have a feeling there will be a lot of legs popping up and down. There's going to be a lot of fear. And sometimes we look at what's happening around us today. We we see a rapid moral decay, uh, obliteration of lines of what people would consider something to be right or wrong. We see our government redefining God's definition of what marriage is, and we're at a point now where we're not only supposed to somehow be tolerant of it, we are supposed to exonerate it. We're supposed to lift it up. We see Christians being marginalized even more as just fanatical kooks. And we look at how fast things are changing. And And it's like, how much worse is it going to get? Scary days sometimes. And yet, it pales in comparison to what Joel describes here. And it's a good reminder to us that the events of this world are heading down a path that we already know. That the rebellion in the world against God is going to grow. The hatred of God's people, Israel, is going to grow. And and sometimes we hear people worried about, well, if we if this happens, it could lead to a worldwide war. It's going to lead to a worldwide war. That the nations of the earth are going to gather all together against Israel, against Jerusalem. And they think that they're gathering to do battle. But what they don't realize is that the battle's already been lost. And they're gathered there for judgment. And in the midst of that warning is the words, by the way, remember, for a believer, we have a refuge. We have a stronghold. We don't have to be fearful in scary days. God is our refuge. He is our fortress. How do I come to the refuge? How do I take refuge in the Lord? And I'm just going to mention three very simple things that we talk a lot about here at Faith Bible Church. Three ways to take refuge in the Lord. One, we take refuge in the Lord by taking refuge within our brothers and sisters in Christ. Galatians chapter 6 verse 2 says, Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. I had a phone conversation with my youngest son a few weeks ago who is for the first time, quote unquote, in the real world. He has his first big person job. And, uh, he's, he's no longer a university student. He's no longer flitting all over the United States and the world with athletics. He's, he actually has to go to work every morning and, and be there like at seven and he's working till five thirty or six or later and, and it's kind of dad's enjoying watching what's going on. And he 's kind of well man, this is kind of hard, and yeah, you know and, and but then he made this comment to me a couple of weeks ago he said i 'm the only Christian in my group, and he says i kind of I feel like I stick out, and um you know it's i don't really have close relationships, and it was just an opportunity to talk with him about the fact that we don't you're not going to f- find what you need in relationships by trying to find it in your co-workers at work. That's why you have a church family. That's why you need to draw together with other brothers in the Lord and find your encouragement and your strength in them. In the New Testament, even like here in Galatians, says that's what we are here for each other as brothers and sisters in Christ to bear one another's burdens. How do I find Refuge in the Lord. Number one, we run to our brothers and sisters in Christ. Number two, we run to talk to God. I want to read a couple of verses out of First Thessalonians. First Thessalonians chapter 5, and I'm going to read verses 17 and 18. Pray without ceasing. And everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. And then verse 25, Paul says, brethren, pray for us. How do I find refuge in the Lord? It's pretty simple stuff here. We talk about it all the time. It's simple to say, but to put it in the practice, so often we don't when we need to. We've got to run to our brothers and sisters in Christ, and we've got to run to the Lord and talk to him. And that's all that prayer is. It's talking to the Lord. It's saying to him, Lord, I need you right now. I need you in my family. I need you to be the husband or wife that I need to be. I need you for wisdom in the workplace. I need you for this project right now. I need you. I need you. I need you. I need you. I'm expressing my dependence on you. And third, so we run to brothers and sisters in Christ. We run to talk to Him in prayer. And then the third way we take refuge in the Lord is to listen to Him. And we listen to Him by reading the only book He ever wrote. A few weeks ago, Pastor Brian Regeer on our staff shared Psalm 119 with us, which is a whole psalm about the Bible. And in Psalm 119... It talks about in verses 81 through 83, just some verses about how we hear from the Lord as we read His Word. My soul, my soul languishes for your salvation or your deliverance. I wait for your Word. So there, the psalmist is saying, I find deliverance, I find refuge in the Word. My eyes fail with longing for your Word while I say, When will you comfort me? Though I become like a wineskin in the smoke, I do not forget your statutes. In the midst of scary days, Joel's message to his original readers and his message to us is this. We have a refuge. We have a stronghold into which we can come. We come to it By coming to our brothers and sisters in Christ and share life with them. We come to it by listening and, or excuse me, we come to it by running to talk with the Lord. And we come to it by listening to Him in His Word. The Lord's going to do battle with the nations, demonstrating that He is the refuge of His people. Father, we thank you for your word and the reminder that in it we hear from you. That in it we find encouragement and strength and refuge. We thank you that we can take comfort, even as we see our culture declining, that that we can take comfort in knowing that you are our refuge and fortress. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.